what does that belief get you? What does the belief that this is how I will always be save you from? What risk does it stop you from having to make? Because man, I've, I've talked to enough people in both the clinical world and the sports world where I can say even the beliefs that we think we don't want, they get us something. They absolutely do. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Mental Golf Show. As always, I'm your host, Josh Nichols. And on today's episode, we have yet another certified mental performance consultant. Uh, I like having these kind of people on because they are in it. They, They are in the field and they are constantly learning and getting better. Um, it's, it's a certification that I aspire to have someday. Um, it's, it's definitely not required to, to have all the knowledge in the world. Uh, as I'm hearing from these, uh, type of people, I've asked their opinion on it, but, um, it's, you can't argue with the knowledge that they get. Um, it's just, it's, it's great stuff. So I like talking to these kind of people because they are just, they, they, they're right in the strike zone for, um, for the theme of this podcast and and that's helping you get better at golf through working on your mind um it's simply put and and that's what these people are specialized in and they're not all specialized in golf but they they all have a piece of of golf knowledge uh they do work with golfers so um i don't talk to anybody that has zero clue about golf so uh this one specifically with uh dr dane anderson he's um he has worked with golfers so um he definitely has that knowledge and he's just got a lot of great perspective to go along with it um and before we get into the episode i just want to remind you about the mental game assessment um i mentioned it last time and and i'm going to mention it more going forward but what it is is it's a free resource for you to to take this assessment receive a customized hand done by me uh, mental game assessment report that shows you your your greatest strengths uh, mentally and your area in most need of improvement mentally uh, and it's across 18 different um, categories of of mental uh, mental categories mental game categories like confidence uh, self-awareness um, love of the game, perspective, uh, those kind of things. So uh, I highly encourage you to to go take it. The link will be in the show notes. Um, it'll be very obvious. Uh, again, that's called the Mental Game Assessment. Um, I, I think it's an awesome resource. Hundreds of people have taken it. So I've got you know thousands of data points because um, the Mental ga- Game Assessment comprised is comprised of like a hundred or so. Um, statements that you answer on a scale from uh, one to five. So uh, it's just an, it's an awesome resource. Um, it's not meant to like help you figure everything out and and perfectly uh, you know perfectly from then on what your uh, you know it it it's not di- it's not meant to diagnose any kind of serious mental issues that you might be going through. But it's just a great additional resource to, to help you get better at golf. So I encourage you to go take that. Um, I'm, I'm proud of it. Uh, my mentor, Robert Linville and I created it, uh, 
a couple years ago. So we're really proud of it. So go take that. Um, and yeah, I think it can help. So let's get into this episode with Dr. Dane Anderson. I hope you enjoy. Dr. Dane Anderson, I appreciate you joining the Mental Golf Show. Um, if you could just start by maybe introducing yourself, kind of giving the listeners a background of like how you got here, um, you know, your your history with, you know, your own personal history with schooling and whatever, um, to how you got to where you are today. Maybe you could fill us in. Sure. I'll do my best. So I've been a therapist for about the last five years and um, prior to being a therapist, I got my bachelor's degree in journalism and was wanting to go in along that route because I love to write. And um, the political realm was was something I was super fascinated by. But the job market in the area that I live in back then, this was um, mid early to mid 2010s, was not great for journalism jobs. So I took a couple of marketing jobs um, in a closely related field and um got fired from both of them um it was not my thing sitting in front of a computer all day long just wasn't doing it for me uh but due to some circumstances in my life with family and and some loved ones uh i began to ask myself like what is it that i i wanted to do with my career and, and my life and um counseling slash therapy. I, I use the terms interchangeably. Um, so they, in, in the context of, of this interview, that's kind of what I mm-hmm. mean. Um, I started out on the therapy road, went to school for, for that. Um, and by the time I was about done with my master's in, in clinical mental health counseling program in 2018, I just felt like I wasn't burnt out on school yet. And so um, I, I can't remember how I even learned about it, but I started thinking about the sport psychology field and I thought, wow, that'd be kind of cool to apply some of the clinical tools that I've developed in graduate school to working with athletes. And so I looked around for, for doc programs that, that offered that I found one met with some of the faculty there, did the interview. And so I, I ended up doing the, the program at University of Western States, which is based out of, out of Portland, which is about four hours north of where I, where I live currently. So um, not only was I working full time as a therapist, but I was doing this doc program learning all about mental skills training and, and how to partner with athletes and coaches to enhance performance to the best of the, the athletes capabilities. And so the second year of my program was 2020. And uh, I started out doing most of my of my clinical hours with a college softball team and loved it, had a great time, learned so much from them, um, became a bigger fan of softball than I ever was in the in the past. Um, But then COVID hit. And Mm -hmm. so that that um, put a lot of my work on the back burner for these, for these kids, cause they were going back home and no one, obviously no one could understand what was going on, but it just seemed like when the NBA um, temporarily yeah. closed their 
operations down, everything else followed suit. Mm-hmm. Bear season um, being a, a part of that. So they were doing super well and they were on a, a I think a 16 game win, win, winning streak. They, they were just doing awesome. And so mm-hmm. that whole season gone completely mm-hmm. in, in a moment. So for us in my doc program, the, the show still goes on and we still mm-hmm. had to find a way to get clinical hours. And so I had to get really creative in terms of like who I reached out to and how I presented my, my, myself and what I was open to. So it ended up being a really cool learning experience for me where I, I had to branch out of my, my comfort zone in, in softball. And I ended up working with athletes in golf in disc golf in soccer, beach volleyball, um, just this wide or like wide array and, and just rich, experience of working with athletes doing different things even while COVID was going on so um anyway I finished my doc program uh in spring of last year so still been doing the the therapist thing full-time um I'm a clinical supervisor at the agency that I work at I do some private practice stuff on on the side and um that's what I hope to bring to people is on on one hand the therapeutic clinical skill set, but then the the mental performance side for other folks, if that's what they're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. I, I appreciate that context. Uh, so I, I love the way and, and something we briefly talked about in email or something you mentioned was you're kind of primarily a therapist counselor and, but you take that to what you do with, with athletes, it sounds like. So what, you know, as we're recording this, it's Mental Health Awareness Month, so it's it seems appropriate to say, um, you know, why why is just at the outset why is mental health so important for people uh, in general? Because the listeners of this podcast are you know they do play golf, but they are people first. Why is mental health so important, and why why is why is it important for people to address their mental health? One of the things that I appreciate so much about the other folks that you've had on as I've been able to listen to them is the emphasis that that all of them have had and that you have touched on so many times on the connection between the mind and and the body. And, And all of your guests that I've heard have a little bit of a different take on what that means and 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 specifically what it means to integrate mind and body into the same concept or in, into the same mm-hmm. experience. So to best answer your question, I would say mental health is so important because from our mental health, we have the capacity to live. Meaning for us as athletes, we have the capacity to play the game in an enjoyable way. So it's, it doesn't become this drudgery. Um, mm-hmm if I'm bogged down by anxiety or I'm ruminating about other parts of my life, that doesn't enable me to be free. And, and, um, you know, Dr. Joseph parent talked about it to, to be present and to play within myself. So from mental health, I think everything else flows that we do as athletes. So I love that, um, there is like an official month for mental health awareness, um, so I, I hope that answers your question. Mm-hmm. 
Sure, it does. Yeah. So, so then as as an athlete, maybe you know someone listening to this, the the range of skill level of of golfer that listens to this is wide. Um, it's based on the stats that I see. It's mostly you know uh, men from. 30 to 60 like that's the primary demographic so it's not you know there there are college athletes listening there are junior players listening there are you know maybe pros listening but it's primarily just the kind of run-of-the-mill average golfer so how can someone like that or maybe i should phrase it like this how important is mental training for someone like that just kind of the average person um and and what what can they do, even if they don't speak to someone like you or me, what can they do uh, to prioritize their kind of mental training, mental improvement? Good question. There's a couple of different ways that I would answer this. Mm. First, and this doesn't make me a good salesman for the kind of things that, that you and I do, but it's mm. it's what I truly believe about it. I don't personally believe that mental skills training is for every person out out there for a lot of different reasons. One is because Mm -hmm. people may not have the the time to devote outside of their work life, their family life, their, their golf life, Mm -hmm. their life as an athlete um, to add like another service that they're seeking. So for folks who who can, I say, great, you know, I folks like, like you and me, Josh um, Mm -hmm. have put in a lot of time, and thought and practice into developing the skill sets that we have to help people who are looking for it. But if someone doesn't have the ability to work with someone like us, there's a lot of really good books out there and I'm happy to, to talk to you about them. Um, but there's a lot of them that I've read in my doc program and in my, my study time outside of that, that enable people to go at their own pace. So there's, you know, no one needs to work with, with me to learn about goal setting or self-talk or, or um, it, uh, imagery or anything like, like that. I can talk about that. And I can, I think folks like you and I can help customize that to specifically what people are, are looking for, but to get the general education of the, of the, the, the mental skills that, that are out there. There's so many books that don't cost a whole lot of money and are, are a little more user-friendly to some people. So that's one, one thing. Um, I, I can't remember the first part of your question. Could you repeat that one, one more time, please? Yeah, sure. I, I just, I, I, I'm just wondering as, as an average listener, you know, basically how, how they can prioritize their own mental improvement, mental training, even though they, um, might not have the time. And you, you answered that. I mean, there, there are so many resources out there, you know, some not as good as others and some as some really high quality. Um, so it's, it's more of, you know, just doing like doing what you can access. And if you don't, if you don't have time or money to invest in actual personal help, um, doing what you can with the time and money that you have is super valuable. So just, just recognizing and to sum your answer up, which I think is perfectly sufficient, um, is recognizing your deficits, recognizing how you need to improve and taking steps to do that, um, in a, 
in a thoughtful way, in a thoughtful and intentional way, instead of continuing to just deal with the same problems over and over and just and just saying, well, I'll always be like that and not addressing it, right? So I, your your answer is perfectly sufficient. Um, and And to the listener, it's like, be aware of what you need to work on and and do it and and don't don't think it'll just take care of itself, right? Yeah, I do my best to encourage people to ask deeper questions of themselves. Like how first of all, what is it that I want to improve most? <clears throat> Second, what category of improvement is that? So for your listeners, it might be I maybe I need to work with with a swing coach more, or maybe I need to work with someone to overcome uh, this struggle of letting my mistakes go. Um, folks like you, you and I, um, mm. and then, yeah, just ask like, how important is it to me that I correct this? What'll happen if I don't, what's most likely to happen? What's most likely to happen if I do, <clears throat> but I think it all has to go back to, the reason that we play sports hopefully is, is to enjoy the experience. And when we look at these obstacles psychologically that get in the way of that, um, there's a lot of good stuff out, out there. Podcasts like, like yours, um, there's books, there's Ted talks. There's so many good things out there that, um, people have a lot of good access to, I would think. Yeah. Well said. Okay, so to back up a little bit, and this is a selfish question I always like asking of, you know, people in this field like yourself, is how are you continuing to improve yourself as a coach, as a counselor, as a therapist? What what are you doing on a daily basis to, you know, get better? You know, as as athletes listening, they're used to, you know, topics like what do I need to do to improve myself in golf? Well, you know, you and I are coaches or you're a counselor. So it's important to continue to improve that way. I mean, is it simply just, you know, try trial and error or is it like I'm reading material? What do you like? Maybe specifically, what are you doing to improve yourself as a coach slash therapist? Good question. I think it's really important for me to immerse myself <clears throat> in performance opportunities as much as I possibly can within what I'm able to, to do. I would say the primary way that I, that I do that now um, is being a vocalist on the worship team at, at, at my um, church. Great. And so I, and with that, I mean, I, I took vocal lessons for the almost the last four, four years and there's, there's so much carryover. Um, from learning how to sing and then learning how to, to perform as an athlete. When you're learning the, 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 the structure of notes and vowels and, and pitching and lift and all these, all these terms, you can easily, if, if you let that perfectionism kick in too much, you can boil a song down to just notes and vowels and miss like the, the, the art behind it. So we learn these building blocks in order to be more confident, like in this case, so I can be more confident in my voice so that on Sunday mornings, I'm not having to worry 
about how I sound, but I can, I can trust that, that planning that I've put in. And I, I find that the more that I, I engage with those kinds of opportunities in life, it could be singing, it could be playing golf on my own time, it could be playing disc golf with my family or friends. It keeps me in touch with what the actual lived experiences of other people are. Hmm. Um, so I don't want to lose my connection to that. So that if there's any way that I can um, engage with the, the creative performance side of, of life in whatever that, that looks like, um, it, it keeps me more grounded and, and more present with um, what, what other athletes and performers might be dealing with in their own lives. Yeah. Yeah. It's so easy to, to just be conceptual and theoretical and kind of textbook type of, you know, this is how you should be. So just go be it. I mean, that, that takes away all of the, the nuance of like, I mean, you don't even like, do you even know what it feels like to be in a a competitive high pressure environment? It's so important to know what that feels like and and how I respond and how a human tends to respond in that environment. And you can read about all, read about that all you want, but if you can't know what that experience is, it's really hard to empathize and and relate to the player and actually help them, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned kind of carryover um and and that brought to mind you know, you, you, um, have kind of a foot in each side of, of performance and, um, you know, you're a CMPC, a certified mental performance consultant. So you're, you're, uh, one foot is in the sports realm and the other foot is in the clinical, clinical realm. So what do you, and, and we've probably touched on this in, in different ways already, but what do you see as carryovers across, um, like, what do you do from therapy that helps you over in, um, in sports and how do you, how do you apply that clinical perspective into sport? Good question. I, I appreciate that. I think the mm. first thing I would say is that I have to be really clear on what my ethical guidelines are be, be, between those two hats that I, that I wear. So mm. I, I don't, I don't give athletes therapy if that's not the explicit reason that they're there to see me. With that being said, the perspective that I approach, you know, and in light of the question that you asked me is I touched on a couple of minutes ago. I like Mm -hmm. to ask a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. I don't want to assume that even if they're using language that I'm familiar with, that it's exactly how I could be interpreting that. A good example of that is I like to talk to athletes about what the word skill means, because it's a word that, that I hear in, in both worlds, in the mental performance side and in the, in the therapy world. A lot of families that I work with um, will bring their, their kids in and say, I want my, say some version of this, I want my child to have the skills to navigate school life or to navigate Mm -hmm. their feelings. And so I started to ask myself, well, what does this word skill actually mean? Everyone's using it, but I've never heard it really clearly um, defined. 
So in my doc program, I, I was taking an applied motor learning class and it's, I actually have the, the textbook here that I, this is the one book that I will show and I, they are not paying me to promote this at all, but this is a really good book that just talks huh. about like what it means to acquire new skills in the body and then integrate mm. that into your performance um, as a whole. But the, 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 the definition that the author's give for the word skill in, in the applied motor learning context is the ability to do something with maximum certainty and minimum effort, effort being the sum of energy and time. Hmm. And so I, I, I start there. I say, okay, this mm. is like specifically explicitly what we are here to do to help you find ways to overcome anxiety or anger or for, um, having a hard time letting setbacks go so that you can navigate those moments with a high, the highest degree of certainty possible and the least amount of effort. Doesn't mean no effort, but it means mm-hmm. how do we limit that so that you can use your energy elsewhere? So I like identifying language is, is what I think I have learned on, on the, the clinical side that I hope to bring to the mental performance side. That's one. I would say the other is, and I, and I, which I took some notes here. It was one of the most recent episodes of yours that I was listening to. Um, I was taking notes on my episodes. That's awesome. <laughs> so when, when, when you had Dr. Raymond Pryor on and, yeah. and he was taught, I love that, that episode. That guy's yeah, so great. He, he talked about, the, I think it was him. We talked about the role that core beliefs play in, mm. in how we carry ourselves on, on the course or as athletes. I want to help people really try to identify where exactly those core beliefs come from. My clinical side says there are these early experiences that we go through in life and in this context, as athletes that are formative in, in how we view our, ourselves and our capabilities, whether we see ourselves as capable of progress or being stuck where we are, that whole conversation of fixed versus growth mindset that Carol Dweck has done so much work on. Mm. And I want to help them uncover like, oh, did you did you even know that? In, in, if I think about one client in particular, that they had a coach when they were 12 years old, make a very negative definitive statement about their skill set as an athlete. And we can just unconsciously carry those beliefs in our bodies mm-hmm. for, for so long. And the only way some, sometimes, and this, again, this is one of the advantages to working with a mental performance consultant, as opposed to reading a, a book, books aren't going to ask you these kinds of questions in a personal way. There might be like general ones, but, but I would want to ask folks, when was the first time that you really doubted yourself on, on the, on the golf course, or when was the first time you overcame something like that? And what did the people around you think? So I, I do place an emphasis on the, those early experiences we have with the sports that we either love so much 
or get frustrated by so so much, but that that stir some sort of action in ourselves. Mm, I love that. So uh, I guess I I think back to a personal experience of mine. If if we're talking about formative beliefs, mm-hmm. I um I guess I kind of get vulnerable here a little bit where I. I have always thought of myself as a slow player, like a like someone who takes a long time. And I and I've always questioned, you know, whether or not that's even true and and I I make adjustments to myself and I and I start kind of self-criticizing when I feel like I'm taking too long or I feel like our group is on the clock for, and when we're like, you need to speed it up. And I take all the responsibility on myself. And even if it wasn't me, I just assume because I have this core belief that I'm a slow player. I assume that it's my fault if, if things are going too slow. So if I, if I get up to the ball and I have some kind of doubt and I back off, I start, I start, uh, getting self-conscious of, of thinking everyone's going to think I'm like taking too long. So I almost feel the need to apologize to everyone. Hey, sorry, I'm taking, you know, whatever. And, and that's just from a core belief that might not even be true anymore that I've never really questioned and never really attacked. So I love what you're saying. And I also love that you can't, you know, listening to a podcast like this can encourage people to have that reflection and to say, wait, what core beliefs do I have? But doing it in the context of an actual professional really helps the back and forth and really helps the accountability of those kind of questions. So I love that you brought that up. That I, That's a personal example of mine of that core belief thing. I, I love that, Josh. I appreciate so much even sharing that. I and to, to echo that, I mean, I I have a therapist that I see. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a bit of vulnerability on my end too. Like mm-hmm. I it's something that that I believe in be, because there's so much power in the questions that someone else could ask us. And it doesn't have to be a therapist, it could be anyone in your life who is paying enough attention to what it is that you're expressing to them or what, what you're showing through your body language that Mm. being on the receiving end of a really intentional question can be really transformative. Mm. So I, I highly encourage people to connect with somebody who can give them objective as, as objective of feedback as, as possible about what it is that the other person sees in them. I love that. So let's left turn into maybe some more nitty gritty golf performance, uh, you know, athletic performance type of questions and something you mentioned that you would, you especially has stuck out to you to, to discuss is, uh, perfectionism. So, and you've already mentioned perfectionism with your, you know, vocal, um, with your church, church, uh, singing type of realm. So, how how do you define perfectionism and when is it helpful and when is it hurtful you know maybe particularly in the context of a golfer i would define perfectionism as a core belief that says mm-hmm. there is no little to no room for error and i'm likely going to commit that error 
there, mm. there, there are a couple kinds of, per, of perfectionism that some of the research I've read talks about. There is a type of perfectionism that says um, kind of basically what I just said, that, that there's no room for error. And I'm, I'm constantly like protecting against the experience of failure that a couple other mm. of, of your, your guests have talked about. Mm. There is a more healthy balance kind of perfectionism that says the aim of my preparation, the aim of my performance is to be perfect in the sense of not without error, but the best that I possibly can be. And if perfectionism or if perfection is this it's all, if it's always this moving target that I'm working towards, then I don't have to be derailed by the mistakes that I make because that view of perfectionism or perfection helps me to interpret those mistakes or failures or bumps in the road as actually like necessary steps and phases that I need to go through in order to be as good as I want to be. Hmm. Love that. Yeah. So that's, uh, I think reframing the core belief of like, I need to never, I, I need to never encounter a failure is a debilitating core belief because, uh, as you mentioned, Dr. Pryor, as, as something he said was, um, mistakes and failures are required to get better. You will encounter mistakes and failures and, and if you if you always expect to not encounter mistakes and failures, and that's your definition of success is is experiencing no mistakes, you're going to get burnt out because you're constantly going to be disappointed with what golf is giving you back in return. Because you expect no mistakes, you're going to get mistakes, you're going to be disappointed. And and if every time you show up and play golf, you're disappointed every single time eventually you're just going to not play anymore. You're just going to like, I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, this is not fun <laughs> because I'm always constantly experiencing what I don't want to experience and I'm not getting back what I want. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I, I hate to harp on it, but, but I, I think it's so important for us to really try to understand where our aversion to failure comes from. What makes failure so unsafe? And, and what kind of um, lack of safety is it? Is it, is it a lack of safety within myself? Is it a lack of safety in my connection to other people? Um, you know, unfortunately, and I'm sure you've ran into people like this, there, there is a way of parenting slash coaching out there that actually encourages a really unhealthy perfectionistic view in, in young athletes. And uh, people in the roles that you and I have are, I think, actively working to try to dismantle that and encourage people like, hey, it's okay if if your kid, you know, doesn't make this travel team or it's okay if they're, they're not as good or as interested in the, in the, the, the sport that as, as you might be. Um, so a lot of that is, is peeling back. And again, this is kind of my clinical side talking this it's peeling back the layers of our attachments to other people, especially like the, the people that introduce us to the sports that we love so much. 
I mean, I, we could probably talk about it for hours, but I fell in love with football and basketball because it was always on in my house growing up, you know, in the early nineties, the, the Chicago bulls were making their, their run and, um, grew up a Packers fan. So, you know, I remember Brett, mm-hmm. Brett Favre and it was just this fun thing that both of my parents would do with me. We'd go out in the front yard and we would throw, throw the ball and mom would be the quarterback and dad be the quarterback at certain times. Even grandma was out there once throwing the football. <laughs> so, so the, the way that we attach to sports in the first place is, is so important and it's so worth thinking about because it can help us answer those bigger questions of why is it that this sport is so important to me? Why is it so important that I be as good as I possibly can be at it? Mm. Yeah. I love the, um, uh, the mentality of like parents and, and some parents and some coaches are kind of actively working to cushion their kid or player from failures and mistakes. And that's just, it, it, it stunts growth in that way because you're because you're going to especially when you're out on your own in years from now or you're you know, you go off to college and you're on the team you will encounter mistakes and failures and and having the toughness and the grit to be able to withstand those and not be um, debilitated by them is a key skill and if you're constantly being cushioned from those those issues and those mistakes and failures, then you're never going to be able to handle it once you're on your own. You're always going to your first your first response will be to quit or to uh, retreat or to escape, um, and and that's just that's an unhealthy way to relate to a sport, right? When you had Lou Stagner on, he he talked yeah. about the element of surprise, right? Yep. And and if I grow up as a young athlete in an environment where every mistake catches my coaches or my parents by surprise that reinforces that core belief that, that I have that mistakes are surprising in the first place. Mm-hmm. And, and Lou talked so much about what that does to the neurological activity in our brains. It, it doesn't give us that low frequency zone that we need to be in, in order to be our, our calmest, most connected, most present selves to focus on that next shot. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if you go ahead and accept the reality of mistakes and failures, it won't catch you by surprise. It'll, it'll be like, okay, this is going to happen and I will be okay when it happens. And having that mentality just, it makes you just so much tougher as a, as a competitor, as an athlete, as a person. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So yeah, another, another topic that you, that you mentioned stuck out to you was handling pressure. And this is, this is such a common thing from the players that I talk with. They, they always want to know why can I play so well in casual environments, casual golf but then when I get into a tournament, I just, I'm not the same. I'm, I play worse. So maybe how would you counsel someone like that when, when they, they seem to do so much worse under pressure, maybe what would you tell them? And then how would you help them improve? I think I would, first of all, try to normalize that with a couple of comments about it. I would say 
we do carry, I believe we carry our beliefs in our bodies. And sometimes, and this is the, the example of the change in performance under pressure is a good example of the idea that as a colleague of mine says, the body believes or the body knows, and then the mind catches up. So under a high pressure environment, there's a belief that we carry, I think, that that says I either I wonder if I really have what it, what it takes to, to do well, or what if I mess up in front of these other people? That would be in, intolerable. All and I'm, I'm not talking like we consciously think these thoughts. I'm I'm saying like below the, the surface, unconsciously, these can be the kinds of things that are brought out in conversations like the ones that we're having right right now. Mm. I would try to help them again, borrowing from a term that I've heard you use se- several times in the interviews that, that, that you've done to, to develop a self-awareness that says, I know what I'm doing in, in casual play that enables me to perform as well as I do. And I not only do I notice what is missing in those high pressure uh, moments, but I'm able to identify the effect of, of that. So for an example, if I'm physically tense, if I'm anxious, then that's going to restrict the blood flow to my limbs. And we need blood flow to our limbs in order to, to perform loosely and, you know, the example in basketball is kind of shooting that, that flat shot as opposed to that, that arc that we need to have a better chance of, of scoring that basket. Mm. So um, doing things like taking deep breaths and self-talk and all those skills that we know so, so well come in handy there as long as we're able to help these athletes identify like, okay, this is like the moment when that pressure hits me, I, I know exactly when that is. Mm-hmm. And I'm able to sort of stop, take a break and, and temporarily slow things down so that I can apply one of those skills that we've talked about in our, in our, in our performance um, sessions mm-hmm. and then use that to overcome that moment of pressure and then allow that, that, recovery or that overcoming moment to be part of our memory now. Uh Like um, I think it was either Lou Stagner or um, Dr. Pryor saying like, we're creating this new neural pathway, this new experience that, that says there's another way possible going back to that whole idea of fixed versus growth um, uh, mindset Mm. that there's another way possible out of this. Yeah, I, I, the, the concept of, um, experiencing the discomfort and then showing yourself that you can handle the discomfort through whatever technique you're deciding to use. Like, let's say you're, you step onto the first tee and you feel the pressure, you feel the anxiety, you feel the in heightened blood flow, heart rate, whatever, uh, the in, more intense breathing, you first recognize the feelings 
and then you say, okay, we're going to slow it down, to use your term. We're going to slow things down. We're going to bring things down to a lower level, and we're going to first be aware, like, okay, this feeling is completely normal. Like, everyone feels this on the first tee. Of course I feel this. That means I'm excited and ready. So let's bring it down a little bit because this is a little too much. This is restricting the blood flow to my limbs. I need my limbs to be able to perform a good swing. So let's bring it down a little. And you're showing your brain that I can handle some discomfort, and this is how I handle it. So the next time you get in that uh, environment, you've developed a habit that says, I handle this well, and and it becomes an exciting environment rather than an aversive, debilitating environment. Exactly. I love what, what you said there, Josh, about kind of like answering that question. Can I tolerate this discomfort? Yeah, mm. I can tolerate 30 seconds of anything. Mm. And so yeah. if the answer is yes, then that informs how I approach that next shot. So I agree with you completely. Yeah. Yeah, cool. So you've mentioned growth fixed mindset a couple times, and and this is kind of putting you on the spot. I didn't mention this as a possible topic, but it's just such an important. Uh, you you mentioned core beliefs. It's such an important belief uh, to be able to have a growth mindset. So maybe if if someone comes to you and they they exhibit a belief of like this is just how I will always be. This is who I am. I played bad again. I'm always going to play bad. How would you counsel that player to say, you know, how would you get them through that to to move from a growth or to move from a fixed mindset into a growth mindset? Is is that possible or is it you'll always be that way? I'm sorry that you're just always going to be a fixed mindset. <laughs> it's possible. Yeah. I'm a little bit counterintuitive with questions like this because how I would respond is I would ask them, what does that belief get you? Mm. What does the belief that this is how I will always be save you from? What risk does it stop you from having to make? Because man, I've, I've talked to enough people in both the clinical world and the sports world where I can say even the beliefs that we think we don't want They get us something. They absolutely do. And I think that that is a surprising enough question to a lot of people. It's a question, honestly, Josh, I have to ask myself at times with the own, with my own negative core beliefs about myself or other people. I have to ask like this. Okay. This belief carries a lot of weight. So it's, it's, Mm. it's important. And it can't just be negatively important to me. Like there, there has to be something that I'm getting out of this. So I would help that, try to help that, that person try to make, make sense of like what that negative belief is actually doing for them. For example, someone might say, well, the more that I think about it, if I believe that this is just how I am, mm. then that means that I don't have to put in as, as, as much work because overcoming this would take a lot of work and I'm tired. Oh, okay. So now we're dealing with, with being tired or being burnt mm. out. Mm. We can address that more easily than we can, than, than, than I can like try to 
debate someone into agreeing with me that they can actually move on and they can move mm. forward from these ruts that they've been caught in for so long. I can validate that. Like, Hey, I hear you, man. I, and I don't, I, I wonder if anyone in your life knows how frustrated and tired and worn out you are with feeling so stuck in this way of playing that it feels like you'll never climb out of. Mm. And from there, we can focus on the feeling or the, the emotional like experience behind that belief that is really blocking them from putting in that work to risk the, the, the possibility of actually overcoming this in, in the first place. Mm. I love that. It's um, like you're, you're afraid to push through and grow because you're just you're tired and worn out and maybe burnout. So it's like, let's, let's address that and then realize you, you can overcome being tired and burnout and frustrated and you can push through this. And, and it's, um, I like that empowering someone to move forward and, and like you said, take a risk and also, take the risk of failing. Maybe someone is afraid that if they do try to move forward, that they will fail. All something I hear from time to time is like, I'm nervous about this golf tournament because I've been working so hard. I'm afraid that all of this work will be for naught. It will, it will have been worthless. I'll, I'll show up and shoot 85, which would be great for some people, but I'll show up and shoot 85 and why, why did I even put in all these hours? What was that even for? So they fall back into, I'm just always going to be this way no matter how hard I work. So it's it's empowering someone to say, let's take the risk of failing and for the potential benefit of succeeding, right? Mm-hmm. Let's show someone the only way you can potentially succeed is if you push through, is if you try to grow, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I would absolutely say say so. Um, yeah. There is risk in the sports that we play. Mm-hmm. There's a risk that you might not win. Mm-hmm. Winning is so important. It feels good. It's one of the biggest reasons that we play the, the sports that we do. And there's got to be something else that we find so beautiful about sports other than winning. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, everyone who doesn't win is just wasting their time. And I don't believe that's that's the, the case at all. There's so many good things that that I've learned about myself in the process of engaging in those performance venues throughout the course of my life um, that that have more to do with nailing every single note in that in that song or um, scoring, you know, having a, a, a perfect game in whatever it is that I'm competing in. There's, mm-hmm. there's gotta be more than, than that. And especially for young athletes, when, when that chapter of life is closed and it's time to, to move on, um, you know, if, if they play in high school and they, and they don't go on to college ball or if they play college ball, but then they don't go on to any sort of a professional league after that, I don't think that that means that all that time that they played sports was wasted. There's memories there. There's, there's um, so many beautiful moments that 
have proven to them that they have what, what it takes to overcome seemingly impossible or seemingly impossible obstacles. So I want to try to help people find meaning in sports beyond winning, even if it means confronting this belief that if I don't win, I'm a failure. Mm. Yeah. And adopting that belief oftentimes leads to more success, right? It's, it's a letting go of control to gain control kind of thing. It's, it's so counterintuitive to, to be like, I, I have to be okay with, I have to love all the other things besides winning in order to increase my chances of winning. It's, it's so counterintuitive. And that's the difficulty of the inner side of the game, the psychological side of the game. Um, yeah, I love that. That's well said. Cool. Yeah. So I, I wanted to kind of ask, ask you a couple more questions before, before we round towards the end. Sure. When we are, you know, everyone listening to this probably also watches a lot of golf and, and probably, you know, Olympics or different sports or, or whatever. We watch people on TV at the height of their game or at the height of the the sport that they choose to be in, what should we watch for? Or what do you watch for as, as someone who's high-minded like this? What are you watching for? Is it, is it purely just for the enjoyment of, of watching the Packers play? Or is it, is it like, what can we learn from watching the, the best players in their sport? And how can we take that for ourselves? Yeah. Well, I, I think, the important question to ask is before I watch something like what, what's my goal here or what's, what's the point of watching this? There's Mm -hmm. times I I would say most of the time I watch sports just for the enjoyment of it. Um, I'm a big baseball fan too. So I, I love um, following a team throughout the, the, the year to see, what that development looks like, how their prospects come up and what they're struggling with most, what their body language looks like. Mm. And I, and I think one of the most important things that I can tell of watching professional athletes do what they do is how they handle setbacks. Mm. That's always been a, a trait I've admired so much in, in high level athletes who don't really seem to be phased by how much time is left in on the, on the clock or even what the score is, mm-hmm. but that they can still give it their all because their core belief says, if we work hard enough, we can win this. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter that there's this much time left, but there's only, there's only, you know, it's the bottom of the ninth and we're down four runs. Hey, we can, if we put t- together enough good at, at bats, enough good hits, we can really turn this thing around. Mm. So I would say that's my biggest takeaway that I've, I've come to admire and appreciate so much in some of the best athletes in, in the world. Um, I kind of a personal story. I watched, I got up at 4am last summer to watch the, the gold medal softball match between the U S and Japan. And, um, it was a back and forth game. And if anyone, if any of your listeners have seen it, you know, what I'm talking about, but, uh, 
both teams, I mean, it was just like this, this wonderful match of, of talent and hard work. And uh, some of those players are, I think were in their late thirties and they had been on, on uh, Olympic softball teams since the, the mid to early two thousands. And um, that is like one of the most memorable games that I've watched just in terms of mm. how they didn't give up all the way till, till the very end. And uh, there was tears at the end for, for the U S cause they, they lost, but they were mm. like these tears of, of strength to me. Like, Hey, this mm. is, we, we came up a little bit short and um, really going to miss this, but we have to accept it and kind of move, move on from, from it. So anyway, mm. I would say just like finding, finding an athlete or finding sports that, that you love, even ones that maybe you're not even super familiar with yet, but like kind of growing your, your range of what you watch and what you take in to learn from athletes in other fields and other sports. Like, what is it that they do? How do they recover from really even potentially devastating setbacks um, that, that I can learn for my myself? Cause I, I think that one of the most powerful ways of learning this kind of stuff is not so much being told, but being shown. I think that's why so many of us fall in love with sports in the first place. Not because when we were two, you know, mom or dad gave us a, a golf club and said, here, hit, hit this, but we watched it on, on TV. We saw them playing. So learning through modeling is a, is a really cool way to develop the, the mental toughness that we're talking about here. Mm, yeah. Watching how the best handle setbacks and mistakes. That's awesome. I love that. Okay. So, uh, maybe one final question, and you've probably heard this since you've listened to some episodes, something I kind of always ask at the end is what percent of golf or high performance uh, is mental and what percent is physical? Yes, I have heard this question. And so I've, I have thought about my answer. Uh-huh. I don't think it matters. Mm. I think what I would be most curious of is what does Josh at 100% look like? Hmm. What I wrote down some questions here that, that I might ask. Um, yeah. What are, what are Josh's thoughts at 100 per, uh, per percent? Mm-hmm. What are your feelings at 100%? What does your body feel like mm. when, when you're at the maximum capacity that you can possibly give? Mm. And the reason that I sort of sidestep that, that question is because mm-hmm. I think the, the question for me behind that is where does the body end and the mind be, begin? Mm-hmm. You know, it's really hard to, to tell when we're in these states that we talk about like, like flow or everything is just firing on all, on, on all cylinders. How do we know, you know, when the body takes over? So to me, the, the question isn't as important as me wanting to know what does it look like for you to be at maximum ca- um, capacity m- moving mm-hmm. forward. Right. And that, that goes back to, you know, like how can I perform as well in pressure as I do in casual golf is, okay, recognize what you do really well in casual golf because that's when you're at 100% more likely so taking those same facets of yourself, how do I handle, 
how wh- what am I at a hundred? What what are my thoughts, body language, feelings, self talk, confidence, anxiety level, you know, heart rate, all those things when I'm at my best, and that tends to be in casual environments. And how can I adopt those as as much as I can in pressure environments? I love that. I think that's a great answer. Totally. That's as good of an answer to a silly question as you can do. <laughs> it's it's a good question, and I I appreciate the uh, the other ways that folks you've had on have have tackled that. I I learned a lot yeah. from every one of the answers that that they've given. Um, yeah. Can I add one more thing? Of course. To that, one of the other things that you've talked about is like how do you track mental progress? Yeah, and this is. I kind of to, to add to one of the other questions, my answer to the question, one of the other questions you had asked, this is one thing that I am, I'm learning to borrow from the clinical side of what I do at the agency that I work at. We do something called feedback informed treatment called fit F F I T. And really what it involves is having clients complete a survey at the beginning of our conversation that just is like a quick, snapshot of like how their last week has, has been. And they're all questions that, that are scaled from zero to 10. So like first one might, might be, um, how, how am I doing individually? Second one might be, how am I doing like inter interpersonally in, in communicating with other people? How am I doing thirdly at, at my job or at, or at school? And then just like overall the, the, the sum of all that. So like those, those four takes about 30 seconds. Then at, at the end of our, of our conversation, there's a similar survey that, that we do that has them rate again in four different ways, how they feel like that session went from zero mm-hmm. to 10, like zero being not heard or understood at all to 10 being as heard and understood as I could possibly be. Where would I rate my, experience in the conversation that, that, that we just had. So over time, what that does is that gives you a really good set of of data that, that you can look back on to kind of show clients, Oh, okay. Look at when we started treatment back in January, you know, you were down here at about if, if there's 40 possible points on, you know, four times 10, Mm -hmm. you were down at about a 16 to 18, the first couple of weeks, now that it's May, you're up to like 30. So there's a way that you can do that without having to create like this standardized test for athletes that has to go through all these research hoops and all that, but that can just be for you and your and your clients that shows them, okay, you might, I mean, I might put in questions like um, at the end of our, of our conversation, um, Zero being, I don't believe this skill will help me at all. 10 being, I believe it'll help me as much as anything. Where would I rate how helpful I think this skill is going to be? Mm. So then you can sort of check. And then over time, again, you have this really nice um, smattering of, of data points that, that says either it's trending upwards or it's not working at all. And if it gets to that point, we need to have a conversation about, is this really helpful for you? And if not, what are some other directions that we can go in that get you the help that, that you're most desperately looking for? So mm. finding really simple ways to, 
include clients' feedback in how they are in, in interpreting, like how effective the interventions that I'm using are in terms of like directly affecting their performance on the course or on the field as they see it. Right. So it's just spitballing here. How would you suggest a listener, you know, there's however many people listening to this that aren't working with people like you and me, how would you, how could you recommend someone like that doing this kind of thing just for themselves, just by themselves, just off the top of your head? Mm -hmm. Because that's clearly like a two way, um, how much help am I giving you? How helpful is this? Now let's adjust going forward. If it's just someone with themselves, how could they kind of adapt that just to be individually? Yeah. I would say pick pick a resource. It could be like I'm gonna watch I'm gonna watch 30 minutes worth of YouTube clips on how to be how to get better at chipping. I would start maybe with a kind of asking my, myself, okay, on a, on a scale of zero to 10, zero being totally suck and 10 being <laughs> I'm, you know, PGA le- a level, or if not PGA level, like as good as I can possibly be, hmm. where would I rate my chipping skills now prior to watching this? Then I would do the intervention quote unquote, or I, w- I would watch the, those clips and I would go out and I'd practice. And I would choose, okay, I'm, I'm going to um, shoot 50 shots here. Mm. And then I would say, okay, so compared to what, my, what I thought my skill was prior to watching these clips, I mean, you could even shoot 50 prior to watching clips and then 50 after mm. and say, okay, this was my score before, this was my score after do I, how much do I believe that my increase, if there is one was due to what I had learned? Mm. You could do that with, with watching clips or reading books, having Mm -hmm. a conversation with someone so that you're actually having data to go off of rather than, well, like right now, I feel like that was good, but then a week from, from now, I'm not really sure. Right. So I am in favor of data like that, especially when we're talking about like, like identifying what our core beliefs are, because we may find that my core belief doesn't match up to what my own data, my own personal data actually says about my skills. Hmm. Mm-hmm. There's so many things out there that, that I can believe that may just not be true. Hmm. So I like identifying the beliefs as we've been talking about this morning is super important, but having data to really test them with to, to see is what I'm doing to try to better myself or to better my game actually beginning to change this core belief that I have about who I am and what I'm capable of. Mm, I love that. That's awesome. That's a, that's extremely practical. So for those listening, I, I like the idea of, um, you're about to read some book and that's something I want to ask you about here in just a sec is books, but you're about to read something. So, and you know, the topic of the book, and this is what I'm specifically going to address by reading this book. How do I feel like I am now personally in this area 
one to 10 across, you know, four or five different, whatever, and then read it and then try to apply it and, and chart again. Okay. Now, how do I feel a week later or whatever, or once you're done reading the book, as you've been applying it along the way and you can see it's a, it's a clear way to show you, I started here. Now I'm here. It, it destroys any kind of fixed mindset to say, I can't improve this certain thing, or the mental game can't be improved, or I'll always be this way. You clearly see, I wanted to improve this thing. I I worked on improving it, and I did improve. I, that's amazing. Yes. Journal, chart. Yeah. E- everything possible, be- because there's so much that happens in, in the course of one day or of one round. And um, that kind of practice has really helped me in, you know, my own mental health, even of just like tracking. Okay. Like for example, when does anxiety affect me most? Mm-hmm. When, when was it, was a time, um, throughout the course of, of the, the day I'm journaling about in particular that the anxiety went away. Mm-hmm. You could do it with anything, but our beliefs aren't always founded on our day-to-day actual lived experiences that, that we're going through. So taking time and, it, and it's, it's tedious. It's, it adds an extra step to all of this, but if we're going to really confront those core beliefs for what they are, it's necessary. Mm-hmm. So I always yeah. encourage stuff like this to, to folks and um, the, the resources out there, there's so mm-hmm. many of them they can't in and of themselves invoke this change, but they can really help us in, in getting those tools and skills that we need to enact that change on our own. Yeah. Okay. So with resources in mind, obviously knowing nothing is a fix all, but if you could recommend, you know, a book or two or something for a listener, um, what do you, what do you think you would recommend? Like, is it kind of something everyone's heard of, or is, do you have some kind of specific, I know you mentioned that textbook yeah. earlier. One that comes to mind that I read in grad school or in, in my doc program, not as a textbook, but because I found it on Amazon and I, I thought the cover was interesting and I liked it <laughs> was how champions think by Dr. Bob Rotella. Have you ever heard of that book? Oh yeah, sure. have. That's one of my favorites. Yeah. He does a lot of, um, it's been a while since I've read it, but from what I remember, he talks a lot about confronting those beliefs that we have about how good we are about overcoming setbacks. And he has the, the experience of working with, with professional level golfers to back that up. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a really good one. I would say one of my go-to texts in my, in my, um, practicum experience in my doc program was a book called sports psychology for coaches. That's by, um, Burton and Radeke, R-A-E-D-E-K-E, mm. I think, um, yeah, a really good, I think I've heard of that, yeah. yeah, that it's, I, I draw from that one all the time. There's a lot of good worksheets in, in there. Um, mm. Again, disclaimer, I'm certainly not being sponsored by those folks. I don't even know who they are. But um, but those are a couple of the good ones that I've read. And like you had said too, Josh, there's some out there that just aren't that great, that aren't super practical. And um, I I can't even think of the names just I don't want to throw anyone under the bus or anything. Sure. But but just I just encourage folks to, you know, 
try to find like a, a, a variety of things and then whatever works for you best, just go with that. I mean, mm-hmm. we live in a time where we are not hurting for access to these kinds of, of things. Um, That's right. So there's, there's so much out there and if, yeah. I'm, I'm happy to think of some more things and absolutely. Let, no, that's great. Let, let, let you know. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So as, as we finish up, I, I want to give you the, the opportunity to kind of promote yourself or promote whatever you want. I mean, where can people find you? Uh, how, what do you, how do you want people to connect with you? That kind of stuff. Anything you want to promote? You can find me at drdaneanderson.com, drdaneanderson.com. Uh, My contact info is there. If folks want to reach out, if you have any questions, um, I I certainly didn't come on here in hopes of like, you know, getting more, more clients. Um, I, I'm just super grateful that, that you had me on. And if any of this is helpful to you, then, and, and the folks that listen to you on a regular basis, um, I, I think it's, it's worth it, man. I, I really believe in this sort of stuff that we're talking about and the, as the field of sport and performance psychology gains momentum moving forward, I think it's important to, um, it, like continue to give the field credit, like credibility and to, um, really analyze it for, for, for folks who, um, like us are just wanting to, you know, perform as best as they possibly can. Sure. So, yeah. 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 Norm- normalizing it and reducing any kind of stigma around addressing your mentality, uh, I think is, would be a key theme of this podcast is uh, a key purpose of this podcast is saying, look at all these, all these athletes and all these people that are in this industry that want people to perform at their best. And it's no more than that. It's, it's no different than a swing swing coach. So I love, I love the way you describe that. So I'll, I'll link to your stuff for, for the listeners. I'll link to Dr. Anderson's stuff in the show notes. Um, and you can, you can reach him there. So Dr. Anderson, I really appreciate it. This has been an honor for me to talk to you. Uh, this has been super insightful and helpful. I, I really appreciate it. Honor as well too, Josh. Thank you so much. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dane. I know I did. I I learned a lot from talking to him. Um, He clearly um, has taken interest in the podcast himself. So that's always really exciting um, to to get that kind of word of encouragement from him and that um, stamp of approval on this podcast. So that's that's always really cool. Uh, And and before we go, I just want to mention that anything that's talked about in this podcast or, you know, my social or, or whatever. Um, none of it is, uh, meant to, you know, diagnose any mental illnesses you have, um, or, you know, to, to be taken as be all end all advice, Uh, anything, anything I say, or anyone on this podcast says, um, is just meant for information. So, uh, you know, you take what you have learned, um, and, you know, use it at your own risk, I, uh, is kind of how the parlance goes. So, uh, yeah, I just, I, I just feel a responsibility to mention that no one's ever told me to mention that. I, I just feel that responsibility, um, as a psychology adjacent, um, information source. So, uh, I'm, I'm not trying to pass as some kind of doctor that, 
you know, can help you across a podcast, whatever. Uh, anyway, I just feel an obligation to mention that. Um, I, I love this podcast and, and giving you guys this information and giving you guys access to these people that you might not have heard of before. Um, and all with the purpose of helping you play better golf. Like that's the simple mission statement of this. Um, and in doing that through working on your psychology, working on your mind. Um, so this is just another example of that, of this episode. Um, so before we go, I, I also want to mention you can, I'll have links to all of Dane's stuff down in the show notes. Um, and I'll also have links to follow the podcast and follow me on social. Uh, the, the podcast is at mental golf show on Twitter and Instagram. I'm, at Josh Luke Nichols on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I, I encourage you to follow. You can get the latest episode or you can get kind of my thoughts. And um, I try to try to post some good things, especially on Twitter. Um, some some good mental game nuggets every once in a while. I, you know, as I'm reading through a book, uh, right now I'm reading through The Craving Mind by Judson Brewer. It's excellent. I highly recommend you read that book. Uh, I know Dane mentioned some books that, that you should read. But... Um, I highly recommend uh, The Craving Mind by Judson Brewer. And um, just it's just excellent. <laughs> I'm just really enjoying it. Uh, the, the ideas of addressing everything as habits and, and how to address habits through mindfulness um, and just all the aspects of life and, and how we get into habitual patterns and how to interrupt those patterns and just live better lives. Uh, it's just so applicable to, to golf. I can, it's just so clear. So I, I recommend you go read that. Um, so yeah, follow me on social to get kind of my thoughts on that, on those kind of things. Um, yeah, I, uh, again, go check out the mental game assessment. The link will be in the show notes I highly encourage you to do that. It's a great free resource. It takes you about 15 minutes to, to do hundreds of people have taken it and have really got value out of it. So I highly encourage you to go do that. Um, uh, so yeah, thank you for listening. As always, go rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts. That's the best way for people to discover the the podcast. Um, I I would love that. That that's what means the most. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being listeners of this podcast. This has been the Mental Golf Show, and I'm Josh Nichols. And catch you guys next time.